like to welcome everyone signing on with us on Facebook Live right now. Or later, or on our podcast later online as well. Come on back to your seats, everybody. Some smiling faces in the house today. Some frowny faces in the house today. No? No? Okay. Come on back. All right. How we doing? We doing okay? All right. Okay, we got to do these. How many, how many weeks were like this? Yeah? How many weeks were like this? That's good. How many weeks were like this? I apologize. I'm sorry. Praying blessing and favor over you for this week. May this week be a great one. It's my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at Dwell Church. We're in March. This, this year is flying by already. Gosh, March already. This month, we are not working through a sermon series. Two weeks ago, we had a phenomenal panel of six people from our church family share on the integration of faith and work. Each person brought a unique and different perspective to the table. It was fantastic. If you weren't here to catch that, I highly encourage you to go back on our Facebook Live or on our podcast online and go listen to that. You will be glad you did. Last week was also a little different for us. Um, if you've not heard, our, our church is headed into a, ch- a time of transition. Amanda and I announced last week that our time here at Dwell is coming to a close at the end of the month. Uh, our family will be moving to Fresno. Um, I'll be taking a position at a church up there. So last Sunday was the official announcement, and then our board presented uh, regarding what next steps look like for our church moving forward during this leadership transition. And I just have to say they did so with transparency They did so with integrity and finesse. Uh, No doubt there are still a lot of questions about what moving forward looks like, but they've expressed this this steady openness to keep you current um, with details and updates on what that looks like moving forward. So timeline, the Houston family will be moving at the end of the month. Um, The 31st will be our final gathering here at Dwell. And because of that, that's going to be a different Sunday probably, obviously being our last, which means I have two Sundays remaining here to preach. So I've spent, I mean, that hit me this week. I'm like, man, I have two sermons here left. So I spent some time with, in prayer with God this week, I, just, just asking, I have two sermons left. What shall I preach on, Jesus? And I haven't landed on anything for next Sunday, but I have <laughs> a, a message that's been burning in my belly for you today. Um, this message has actually been brewing in me for the last two years, um, waiting for the right time to preach it. And knowing I have two sermons left, I can't leave without sharing this. Um, and I don't want to overhype it, but this is about as important as it gets for me. If I could leave you with a message, this is what I would want you to hear. So I'm so excited to bring this before you today. I want to preach a message entitled, Intimacy with Jesus, Your Design, Your Longing, Your Purpose. Here's my plan. I want to talk about priorities and promised land. I want to unpack what intimacy is. I want to unpack what intimacy isn't. And I want to talk about resumes and eternal life and a disruptive woman and taekwondo and rabbis and why all that matters for following Jesus. Sound good? Let's do it. Here's how I'd like to frame the conversation this morning. This is what I hope you walk away with today. If you don't get anything else, this is what I hope you walk away with. Intimacy with Jesus is the purpose of your existence. Therefore, the greater your intimacy, the greater your existence. 
Intimacy with Jesus is the purpose of your existence. Therefore, the greater your intimacy, the greater your existence. We're going to do circles around this concept this morning. Intimacy with Jesus is why you were born. It's what you were designed for. Your your raison d'etre, the purpose for which your soul exists. So it's critical that we make it priority in our lives. I once read an article by Greg McCowan entitled, There Can Only Be One Number One. The best kept secrets about, secret about priorities. This is what he writes. When the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s, it only existed in the singular form. It meant the very first or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow we thought that by pluralizing the word, we would now be able to have multiple first things. From your conception, God intended intimacy with him to be the priority of your life. You miss this, it doesn't really matter what else you get right. Maybe you've heard me say this before, first button in the first hole. So this morning I got up, I put this shirt on, I put the first button in the first hole. Then I put the second button in the second hole. If I put the first button in the third hole, it doesn't matter how many I get right after that. The shirt is going to sit crooked, right? If I put the first button in the second hole, it doesn't matter how many I get right. The whole shirt is going to sit off. Intimacy with Jesus is the first button in the first hole. If we don't get this right, it doesn't really matter what else we do get right. And the reason I want to take an entire sermon this morning to talk about knowing Jesus, intimacy with our maker, is because priority in our lives is contested space. There's always something fighting for that spot. There's always something in your life fighting for priority that wants that number one spot, even good things, even healthy things, so they distract us. We get distracted. We get distracted by power by privilege, by pleasure. We get distracted by where we're going. We get distracted by what we think we're intended to accomplish in life, all the while missing the point. You ever notice how Christians love to use the language of promised land? It's a reference to Exodus. You know, Moses' famous line, let my people go. Eventually, the children of Israel are freed from Pharaoh's grip. Moses takes all these slaves out of Egypt, into the desert, eventually to the promised land. So maybe you've heard Christians say things like, I'm in slavery, but God is leading me to the promised land. Or I'm in the desert, but God is leading me to the promised land. And if you've been in the church for a long time, you know there's even code words for this. Things like being vision-minded or goal-oriented or I have this spiritual gift of strategy. So I've got this promised land on my mind. I've watched it time and time again. Individuals fix their eyes on a destination. They fix their eyes on promised land, however they want to contextualize that. But then they miss the point of freedom. You know why God took the children of Israel out of Egypt? It wasn't for the promised land. He freed them so that they would find him in the desert. In Exodus 7, God told Moses, tell Pharaoh, God sent me to tell you, let my people go so they may worship me in the desert. (laughs) He pulled them out of slavery, not for a destination, but for intimacy with him. To encounter their creator, to know and be known by him through worship in the desert. I've come to realize it's not really about where you're going. It's about encountering God where you currently are. And then at your next location, encountering him there. 
because your next location will be your present location. We're so good at going a mile ahead and trying to encounter God tomorrow, but you can't encounter God tomorrow. All you've got is this moment. Intimacy with Jesus is the goal. It's the purpose of your existence. Therefore, the greater your intimacy, the greater your existence. But what is intimacy? And maybe just as important, what is intimacy not? I want to walk through a, couple, through a few points here. Firstly, the word intimacy, it centers itself on knowing and being known by another. Knowing and being known by another. It's the desire It's ultimately the action that leads us to pursue another person and allow that person to to pursue us, to know and be known. Intimacy also includes or requires transparency and vulnerability. This is why one of our core values here, Dwell, is come as you are. It's on the board at the connection table right now, right? Come as you are. Please come here as you are. Show up as you are, not as you should be. Fully yourself because nobody else in this room can show up as you. We need you to be you. This is what Jesus offers us, to be fully seen, to be fully known, to show up naked and unashamed. Not literally naked here. Figuratively, naked and unashamed, fully ourselves because we're fully accepted by him. Intimacy is also hardwired into human beings. It is built, it's hardwired into us as human beings. The desire for intimacy Intimacy with God, intimacy with others, it's our blueprint. It's the framework. It's in our DNA. You were created for this longing for intimacy. I mean, it's a deep and profound and passionate longing that is deep in your soul for God. It's like, it's like this mystical appetite that can only be satisfied by intimacy with God. And we've learned to fill it with other things, to try to satisfy it with other things. And essentially, that's how sin shows up in our lives. A few things intimacy is not, though, and this is really important, I think, that we do this too. Intimacy is not about shoulds. It's not about shoulds. A lot of Christians have a bad case of the shoulds. Being close to God, going to church, reading your Bible, fasting, praying, being nice people. This is what Christians should be doing, right? Shoulds can get us in real trouble sometimes. Because what they do is they rip the heart out of the action. For example, let's say it's Amanda's birthday, my wife's birthday. I hand her a box. She opens it. It's a beautiful diamond necklace. And she says, oh, my gosh, Josh, this is gorgeous. Thank you. And I say, it's no biggie. I just read this article the other day that said if I want my wife to be happy, this is what I should do. That should just rip the heart out of the action. It spoiled the intimacy, right? Even if it was a good idea. Intimacy is not about shoulds. Intimacy is also not about fear. It's not intended to be motivated by fear. For example, let's say Amanda's birthday shows up and I hand her a box and she opens it and it's this beautiful diamond necklace and she says, oh my gosh, Josh, this is gorgeous, thank you. And I say, it's no biggie, but to be candid with you, I got this because I was afraid of what you would have done to me if I didn't buy this for you. That fear ripped the heart out of the action. It spoiled the intimacy, right? Even if it was a good idea. Intimacy is not about fear. Intimacy is also not about sinning less. Following Jesus is not, it's not about reducing our our lives, our our moral push forward into just sin management. Dallas Willard used to use the term sin management. Christians are just, they're just managing sin in their lives. They just want to try to do it less. It's like the, uh, the sign in 
like construction zones. It's like this many days since an accident. Just trying to manage the sin so that there's, there's less days on the clock. Following Jesus is not a list of to-dos and a list of to-don'ts to avoid breaking things. It's not about not messing up. Just like the goal of our marriage is not avoiding divorce. Yes, we didn't get divorced this year. High five. What a crappy marriage, right? No, the goal of marriage is flourishing and life-giving relationship. It's chasing intimacy for intimacy. It's knowing another for the purpose of knowing another. Add one more to the list. Intimacy is not about what you gain from it. It's not about what you gain from it. You ever been in a close relationship with someone who was only in it for what they could get out of the relationship? It sucks, right? You can feel it. For example, let's say the only reason I got married to Amanda was so someone could serve me and make me feel good. Cook me dinners, wash the dishes, take out the trash, walk our dog Goonie, grocery shop, do the laundry, make my bed, rub my feet. Again, what a crappy marriage, right? That's not intimacy, but we do it to Jesus. And why would we think it would be any different for him? Teresa of Avila, 16th century Spanish mystic, she encouraged her friends, seek not the consolations of God, but the God of consolations. Meaning, don't go to God for what you can get out of him. Go to God for God. This is what Jesus invites us into. True, honest, life-giving knowing of the other. Intimacy for intimacy's sake. And it's vital we get this because intimacy with Jesus is the purpose of your existence. Therefore, the greater the intimacy, the greater the existence. You following? Let's keep circling. The Apostle Paul. We read from him. We read about him in the New Testament. He's this remarkable man, remarkable accomplishments, astonishing resume, arguably one of the best in the history of the church. And yet in his letter to the Philippians, this is what he writes. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. You ever sat with that for a second? It's like, if you think you're awesome, I have more reasons to think I'm awesome. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, I'm faultless. Talk about a superiority complex here. If you don't know what any of that means, he's basically saying, I'm the freaking man. But then he keeps writing. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Can we sit with this for a second? The Apostle Paul, church planter extraordinaire, writer of much of the New Testament we read today, one of the most famous Christians of all time. If there's like an employee of the month club for Christianity, like Christian of the century or something, like he's probably got a plaque hanging in heaven right now. This guy, the Apostle Paul, says, you want to compare resumes? I'm going to beat you every single time. 
Yet when I hold my resume up against knowing Jesus, everything I've done is garbage. More literally, excrement. Everything I've accomplished is crap when it's held up to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And knowledge in Scripture, knowing, it's never limited to head knowledge. It's not like I heard about this person, I gained information about them. In Scripture, knowing another is about an intimate encounter of that being. Like Adam knew Eve, like he knew her. Or like in the movie Avatar when their tails merge and he says, he says, I see you. I love that line. I see you. I know you. Knowing is this deep and profound encounter of another soul that impacts your soul. Paul says, I don't care about everything I've done. It's all crap when it stands next to the worth, the value of knowing and being known by Jesus the Christ. So if the Apostle Paul wanted to communicate that his best accomplishments were crap up against the worth of knowing Jesus, what do you think you'd say about your accomplishments? (laughs) My accomplishments. You know what I mean? More than anything you can do for God, more than anything you can achieve, the thing God wants most from you is intimacy with you. Intimacy with Jesus. It's the purpose of your existence. Therefore, the greater the intimacy, the greater the existence. Let's keep circling. John 3.16, probably the most well-known, misunderstood verse in all of Scripture. God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life for centuries. Most of the church has interpreted it this way. God loves the world so much he sent his one and only son to die. Whoever believes in him would not perish, would not go to hell, but would have eternal life. We'll get to spend eternity in heaven with God. The funny thing is Jesus actually defines eternal life a little bit later, and it's not that. You want to know what it is? John 17, this is what he said. He's praying to his father. He says, this is what he says. Now, this is eternal life. These are red letters here. Jesus talking. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and that they would know Jesus the Christ. And remember, knowing in Scripture is about an intimate and transformative encounter of another being. To see them at such a depth that it impacts your soul. Eternal life is not about getting to heaven. It's about living into the divine right here and right now. It's about God's life and God's breath and his goodness and his wholeness invading our our lives so tangibly at this point that it extends into eternity. It's about a life-altering encounter with our sculptor. This is eternal life. So let's go back to John 3.16 now. God loves the world so much he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That changes the context a little bit, yeah? Jesus emptied himself. He gave himself. He sacrificed himself so we would know God. Intimacy with Jesus It's the purpose of your existence, therefore, the greater your intimacy 
the greater your existence. Let's keep circling. I want to introduce you or maybe reintroduce you to my favorite character in Scripture, besides Jesus, of course. This disruptive woman has become a hero and a mentor to me. Her name was Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany shows up in three stories in Scripture. I want to quickly walk you through them so you can see what kind of woman this was. The short version, chapter 10 in Luke, first one, Mary and Martha, their sisters, they invite Jesus into their home, and in this story, we see these contrasting approaches to Jesus. We've got Martha, who's in the middle of this dedicated preparation for Jesus, worried about what needs to get done, anxious about why the place is not as it should be. Mary, on the other hand, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, actively listening, and Martha kind of like perks up here. She seems angry in the story. She says, basically she says to Jesus, can you tell Mary to get up off her butt and help? And we often give Martha a hard time about this, but in this culture, hospitality is one of the greatest gifts you could give a person. Opening your home, welcoming them in, washing their feet, honoring them, celebrating them, feeding them. I mean, this is a fantastic gift that Martha's giving. Martha gets a bad rap in this story, unfortunately. She's doing something wonderful, something extremely meaningful for Jesus. However, Jesus jumps in. He tells Martha, you're anxious, you're anxious, you're worried about a lot of things here. Um, Few things are needed, though. In fact, only one. Mary chose what is better. Also translated, she chose the good thing. Martha's gift to Jesus was good. Mary's gift to Jesus was good-er. Second story. John chapter 11, the short version. Mary and Martha have a brother. His name was Lazarus. Lazarus gets real sick, so he sends word to Jesus. The sisters send word to Jesus. Come heal, come heal Lazarus. Jesus makes his way to Bethany after Lazarus dies. Martha meets him on the way there. They have this conversation, and then Jesus asks for Mary. Martha goes back home. Hey, Mary, Jesus is asking for you. And in vulnerability and in tears, Mary falls at the feet of Jesus. She says, Lord, if you have been here, if you were here, our brother would not have died. We see this this transparent combination of faith and frustration, this force, this candor, this sincere presence about Mary. It's, It's this total authenticity before Jesus. She's broken. She's discouraged. But we also see this like this buoyant hope in his power as well. And then Jesus weeps. This is where we see Jesus weep over the death of his friend. And then he says, let's go wake up the mummy, right? Go wake him up. Third story, John chapter 12. Again, the short version. Jesus comes back to Bethany. A dinner was thrown in his honor. Lazarus, the mummy, he's eating at the table. Martha is serving, of course. And what would you imagine Mary to be up to? She grabs a pint of pure nard, this this very expensive perfume. She kneels down before Jesus, she pours it on his feet, and she wipes it with her hair. How costly was this act? Judas is at the dinner. We all remember Judas, and he was furious with her actions. He wanted to know why the money wasn't sold, the money given to the, or the the perfume wasn't sold, the money given to the poor, and he claims this was worth a, a year's wages, a year's income, and she breaks it open, pours it on Jesus' feet in what appears to be this, this sacred ritual. No hesitation to offend the disciples here. 
She's like, I know exactly how much this is worth. Jesus is worth it. This is Mary of Bethany. Now, I'm a patterns guy. I have a math brain. I do Rubik's cubes. If something repeats itself multiple times in a row, I often see the pattern, the repetition. Did you notice an echo in these stories? A pattern? Mary of Bethany is mentioned three times in Scripture, and in all three narratives, where does she place herself? At the feet of Jesus. In each story, she places herself at the feet of her master. Now, I want to unpack this culture a little bit because this is a big deal. You see, in our culture, sitting at the feet of, the feet of Jesus, it tends to take on this passive, sensitive temperament. Oh, let's sit at the feet of Jesus. But in ancient Israel, this act is bursting with a different kind of meaning. Physically placing herself at Jesus' feet multiple times in front of a lot of different people is uncommon and it's extreme. And I want to show you why. A little about rabbis first. Jesus is a traveling rabbi. He's moving from town to town. He's ministering. He's healing. He's preaching. And a rabbi would have a unique way of interpreting the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament, it was their the religious law. They had a, a specific bent or angle on the Torah. Um, and and there, it was like different things they stressed. It was different things they highlighted. They wanted to focus on. So a rabbi would say things like this. You've heard it said, but I say. It was a common phrase for a rabbi. And a rabbi's particular interpretation of the Torah was called his yoke. So when you became a student of a rabbi, you would take that rabbi's yoke upon you. It was his way of seeing the world. It was his way of ordering the world. It was his way of approaching and participating with divine life. And if you're familiar with Jesus, you know his yoke. The thing he loved to talk about was the kingdom of God. Now, this word kingdom was loaded. And this time, it's a volatile, emotional, political word. And, and this makes Jesus' message, I mean, his, word of him is starting to spread. It makes his message threatening to a lot of really important and powerful people. And it's so important that we read the gospel this way in its context because it highlights things in different ways and it makes the thing pop. Jesus didn't want to start a religion. He wanted to start a revolution, a revolt, an uprising. He wanted to introduce a radical new way of what it means to be human. So he takes the current standards of success and he flips them inside out. He takes the current hierarchies and he reorders them, which is why he eats with a lot of people he should have not, need, he should have not eaten with, right? It's this blatant, political, rebellious act again and again. He says, no, I don't agree with, I don't buy into your definition of power, your way of ordering people. Children, prostitutes, tax collectors, bleeding women, Samaritans, adulterers, unclean, the dead. I don't care how you order the world. My way of ordering the world is the right way because I made the world. And so Herod is hunting him down. We see this in Luke 13. Herod is effectively the most powerful man in the Galilee region. He's got a large army, and he's known for hunting down threatening people and murdering them. This is what Herod does, and this man wants to kill Jesus because of Jesus' message, because of Jesus' revolution that he's slowly and subversively starting. Another thing about rabbis, they had disciples. And the essence of discipleship was about learning to do what the rabbi does. 
discipleship was not about head knowledge. It wasn't about doctrine. It wasn't about a correct theological framework. Discipleship was about encountering the rabbi in a deeply personal and transformative way. It was about knowing the rabbi, living close enough to the rabbi to catch his heart so that you would in time be able to become him, to imitate him. I think a great example of this in our current context is martial arts. I took Taekwondo for a few years in college. Twice a week, I'd show up to class. I would learn from my instructor. You know what I didn't do? I didn't sit behind a desk. I didn't write essays on what my instructor said or what I watched my instructor do. You know what I did? I watched my instructor, and then I imitated my instructor, and then I fought my instructor. (laughs) He'd say, show me what you learned. And I got kicked in the head a lot. And eventually, I got a little quicker, and I got a little smarter, and I got a little stronger, and eventually I was fighting like my instructor. You following? The rabbi-student relationship was ultimately about imitation. And what was Jesus doing? He was flipping power upside down. He's rearranging social order. He's warring political authority through service, through love. This is what Jesus is training his disciples to do. And do you know where disciples place themselves? At the rabbi's feet. When you sat at a rabbi's feet, it meant you were actively engaging as a student. Mary repeatedly placed herself at Jesus' feet. Do not be confused. Mary is not interested in a cute Bible study. (laughs) Mary wants to join a disruptive revolution. And joining this revolution means coming under supportive alignment with the man Herod wants to kill. That's what's at stake with this. And to take it a step further, as a general rule, women did not sit at men's feet. They did not sit at rabbi's feet. This was inappropriate. This is, this is disgraceful. Discipleship was a boy's club. So Mary's repeated action is thoroughly rebellious. It's intentionally cutting at the current social order. And Jesus appears to be fine with it. Remember back to the Mary Martha story. Martha says, Jesus, tell my sister to get up and help. Tell her to get off the ground in front of you and contribute. Jesus responds, few things are needed, Martha. In fact, only one. Mary chose what is good or what is most good. Oh, and this part's so good. I don't know if you've heard about the principle of first mention. I got to throw this at you. Essentially, what the principle of first mention says is if you see something in these Jewish texts that pop, that stand out, and you're like, I know there's something buried here, I just don't know what it is, it might help to look where it first appeared, where that word or that phrase first appeared in the Hebrew text to help interpret how you're reading this one. Do you know where good first shows up in the Hebrew texts? Yeah, the creation poem. God creates, this is good. God creates, this is good. Man plus woman, this is very good. Good meaning it works. Its design is matching its function right now. Good is about the ongoing creation of God's world. Good is about purpose being realized. It's about the design being fulfilled. It's as as if Jesus says in this moment, this is what humanity was intended to do, Martha. This is what you were built for. 
Sitting at my feet is the most good thing you could ever do with your life. Mary is a tenacious woman. She knows placing herself at Jesus' feet is a rebellious act. She knows it carries social, cultural, political implications. She knows that it may eventually cost her her life. She knows exactly what she's doing at the feet of Jesus. She doesn't care who it disrupts, what it overthrows. She knows what she was built for. I want to know you, Jesus. I will risk reputation. I will risk convenience. I will even risk my life to be close to you, to learn from you, to become you. All three stories, whether in humility and silence, in questioning and confusion, or in adoration and anointing, from, from the posture of her heart unto the literal posture of her body, surrender and vulnerability and intimacy enveloped her. She knew this is what I am made for. Intimacy with Jesus. It's the purpose of your existence. Therefore, the greater your intimacy, the greater your existence. Jesus longs to say to you, well done, good and faithful. Well done, good and faithful. And the most good thing you could ever live for is intimacy with him. Because before all the things Jesus wants you to accomplish for him, he wants you to be with him. Of course we're on mission. Of course we're joining Jesus in the renewal of our city and our world. Of course we're bringers of life and hope and joy. But that work is never intended to get in the way of our intimacy with our maker. M. Robert Mulholland Jr. said, we, get, we can get so busy being in the world for God, we forget to be in God for the world. Good is not about busyness. Good is not about accolades or influence or wealth. Good is about learning to get real comfortable at the feet of Jesus because that's where our design and our longing meets our purpose. We were created entirely for intimacy. And all of this sits in the framework of the gospel. That you're, that, you're, that you're a sinner far more than you know and that you're loved far more than you know. As Brendan Manning used to say, Jesus loves you just as you are and none as you, not as you should be because none of us are as we should be. God does not love you for your potential. He does not love you because theologically he has to. He's ruthlessly enamored by you. He is passionately in like with you. Your honored sons, your cherished daughters of the king, and he loves you not because you're lovely. He loves you because he is. <laughs> this is what he offers you today. You get the better end of the deal. The better end of an invitation for intimacy with the God of the universe. The God of infinity says to you today, accept your acceptance. Know me and be known by me. This is your highest calling to know the Christ, and like Mary of Bethany, to incessantly place yourself at the feet of Jesus. I want to invite the worship team to come back up and a couple prayers to go back to the connection table. We're going to go into a time of response and worship through song and prayer to be able to respond to what God's doing in our hearts and in the room right now. preaching about 
placing ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And whether you want to do that figuratively in your heart or maybe even literally right now, literally maybe even getting on your knees in a physical posture before Jesus saying, I want to know you. I want to be known by you. Maybe you need a song sung over you. Maybe you need someone to stand with you and pray with you for God's goodness and his grace to fall in your life. Maybe you have a specific need you need God to show up for. Maybe you need to confess sin to a friend in here. (laughs) Maybe you just need to sit in stillness as our God, as our maker, redeems and reforms your heart. If you want someone to pray with you, we got a couple prayers back at the connection table who would love to stand with you. In closing, some of us have learned, um, even been trained, to exhaust ourselves trying to do all the things we think will please God, but then have no time or energy left to be with Him. My opinion, the ground at Jesus' feet does not become familiar territory for us. Everything we manage, everything we accomplish, everything we are shooting for, it matters little. It'd be a tragedy to live our lives for the cause of Christ, but fail to place ourselves at his feet. Because holding together all we do is the reality that God will never desire more mission from you than he will intimacy with you. God never will desire more mission from you than he will intimacy with you. So today I remind you, the risen Christ beckons you. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light so Jesus this is what we lean into in this moment is intimacy with you is knowing you and being known by you and we we gather here as a collection of individuals longing to know you personally, but also longing to know you in the larger group setting of this community. May you invade our hearts and our souls right now in such a way that we are profoundly impacted. That we would be able to look in your eyes and say, I see you, I know you, and I'm known by you, God. So as we place ourselves before your feet, would you have your way in our hearts and in our lives? We ask all this in faith in your name, Jesus.